Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. The title of this morning's message is The Wickedness of Partiality. It's about the evil and the peril and the wickedness of having personal favoritism as God's people. And so I hope that you'll see that as we read the text, and then we'll make a few observations about this passage. James 2, 1 through 7. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So I hope you could see right off the page that this morning's text is all about the wickedness of partiality. And I don't think there could be a more fitting passage for us to meditate on this morning because all it takes is just a quick glance at America and you'll find division at every corner. Sure, the world tries to patch it up with all kinds of makeshift bandages, but they normally do more harm than they do good. At the very least, uh, they are temporary fixes or they're shallow solutions. But as God's people, we, as the church, have an answer to the wickedness of partiality because we have a God that is impartial. And so my hope today is that our church would be impartial so that the world would see the glorious love and grace of God in our midst. Now, I think it's a sad observation to make, but I find that the impartiality of God is hardly ever discussed. His attributes are spoken about at length. And so we know that he's all knowing. We know that he's all powerful. We know that he's everywhere all at once. There's common understanding that God is just and righteous. He's a God of wrath and a God of grace. And most of us are able to explain how those things work together into something beautiful. And so all of that is foundational and vital truth to know about God. But so is his impartiality. And yet it's so often forgotten. Peter had to learn this truth about God from God. Because God used Peter, a Jew, to preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile. And God's plan was not only to save Cornelius, but he wanted to teach Peter an important lesson about himself. He wanted to teach Peter that he's a God of partiality. And so Peter, after Cornelius gets saved, this is what Peter says. He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so true is this of God's character that partiality was condemned in the court of law for ancient Israel. So here's Leviticus 19.15. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. 
You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. His impartiality means it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. His wrath extends to all sinners who don't trust in Christ. And his grace covers all who do trust in Christ. It doesn't matter what continent you're from or what nation you live in or what skin tone you've been blessed with or what beautiful language you speak. Paul says in Romans 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For there is no partiality with God. And this should be most pronounced in the church. Paul taught the church in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He taught something similar to the church in Colossae. He said, as God's people, we're experiencing a renewal. Hear that, a renewal. We have a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, the church shouldn't be divided by the distinctions that the world makes. Why? Because we've experienced a renewed spiritual life where Christ is all and in all. Meaning we're so united to Christ in such a way that it can be said that he is in all. But it also says that Christ is all. Meaning Christ is everything. You, me, and all believers no longer primarily identify as white, black, American, Asian, poor, rich, educated, uneducated, so on. Christ has become all among us. My skin color is not my all. My nation is not my all. My education is not my all. These things shouldn't be ignored as though they're meaningless, but they're no longer our all. In the church, Christ has become everything. And so everybody in this church can happily link link arms under the banner of Jesus. God's impartiality extends to the ends of the earth. In Revelation 7, 9, the Apostle John gets a little glimpse of the future. He gets a little glimpse of heaven and what it's going to be like. And the impartiality of God was on full display. This is what he witnessed. He witnessed a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's grace extends to the point of saving people from every nation, every tribe, Every people, every tongue, meaning every language. There's never been a more impartial plan than God's plan because there's never been a more impartial being than God. And so the church should be the most impartial people on the planet. And what a tragedy it would be for us to do the opposite. And so what I plan to show you this morning is how our passage answers a couple of questions about impartiality. First, Our passage answers this question. What is partiality? And second, why is it so bad? What is it and why is it so bad? Now, before I do that, we need to understand the flow of our text. So if you look closely, you'll see that verse one is a command. 
In chapter two, verse one, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't do that. Don't claim to be a Christian and to hold your hope out for the gospel while you're a person who shows personal favoritism, which is what partiality really is, showing personal favoritism. That's, that's the point of this passage. Don't be a Christian who shows personal favoritism because those two things don't go together. If I told you don't eat this thing with that thing or don't wear this color with that color or don't do that thing in this way, what I'm saying is that those two things don't go together. And James is saying being a Christian and having personal favoritism do not go together. They shouldn't exist in the same universe. They're a contradiction. So don't hold your faith in our glorious, impartial Lord Jesus with that kind of partial attitude. So that command in verse one sets the stage for the following verses. He said, don't do it. And now he wants to show us why. Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we show partiality as God's people? What is partiality and why is it so bad if we do it? And so that's our first question. What is partiality? If you shouldn't have it, then you need to know what it is so that you can identify it and you can address it. and You can do something about it. And once again, we have to follow the flow of James passage here. So follow along with me in verses two through four. He's going to give us a real life example of this. Don't hold your faith. Here's verse one. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Verse two, for, now here comes the example. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit over here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So this example is about personal favoritism shown to the rich over the poor. And you can see that clearly, right? There's one person who comes and he's clearly rich. He's dressed nicely. And there's another person who comes in who's obviously poor because they're dressed with dirty clothes. And the idea here is that maybe there's a temptation to show personal favoritism towards the rich man. And so that's the illustration. That's the particular example that James uses here. But we have to go a little bit deeper because there are some bigger principles here in this passage than just how we show partiality when it comes to the poor and the rich. There are some phrases that actually tell us what's going on when we choose the rich over the poor. And those principles can apply to all kinds of partiality that you might have in your life. So I want to show you how James substitutes that term in verse one, personal favoritism. He substitutes that phrase with other words. And there's two substitutions I want to point out. Look at verses two and three again. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. So there's the first thing that partiality is. It's showing special attention to one type of person over another, the rich over the poor, the educated over the uneducated, the ones who look like me and the ones who don't, the ones who have similar interests as me and those who don't. And so maybe you've arrived this morning 
considering yourself to be fairly impartial because you love all people, right? You wouldn't dare dislike others because of their looks or their career or their social status. But showing personal favoritism is more than just not having hatred for another group. It's paying special attention to some over others. What is partiality? It's showing special attention to these people and not to those. Because of what they're like or how they look or what they do for a living or how well versed they are in theology or not. So I can imagine how we can show special attention to someone because they make more money. That's the, that's the example in this passage today. Or perhaps you could show personal special attention to those who are closer to your age demographic. Or maybe special attention towards those who have similar interests as you. Or special attention towards the moms instead of single ladies. Or special attention towards other single women instead of the moms. This special attention often takes form and preferential treatment. That's what happened in the text. In James' example, the rich are given the nice seats. The people greet them and they shake their hand and they converse with them, but the poor man is ignored. And when someone finally recognizes them, they make them sit over by the wayside so they don't become a distraction for the rest of the church. It's showing special attention. It's showing preferential treatment. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to watch ourselves in this way. Are there patterns in your life from week to week and Sunday to Sunday? Are you having conversations with the same people or the same types of people? When someone is new or someone sitting by themselves, do you make the effort to love them and to care for them and to encourage them? Is there an invitation to lunch on the horizon, especially for those who maybe you would never be friend if it wasn't for Jesus? Because they're just different than you. Or do you have a pattern of sticking with the people that you're most comfortable with? We have to remember that Jesus came and he pitched his tent with a broken and sinful generation to purchase sinners and unite them into one family. And so if we're united in Christ, surely we can live life with each other no matter our differences. To avoid partiality, we need to avoid giving special attention to some believers over others because of how the world might separate us and say that we're different. Now, there's another substitution for this phrase, personal favoritism. And this also teaches us what partiality is. And so let's read verses three through four again. And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil motives. So personal favoritism was just described as giving special attention to one group over the other in the church. But here it's described as making distinctions among ourselves. Discriminating among ourselves. Now those words among yourselves are crucial. Because James has the church in mind here. Among the members of the church they are discriminating. They're making distinctions Based on those who are rich and those who are poor. In other words, personal favoritism or partiality is distinguishing among God's people on the basis of how the world divides us. There's a million different ways to divide people. 
We can do it on the basis of skin tone or language spoken. We can distinguish between bank accounts and white collar or blue collar. There's tall and there's short. There's young and there's wise. There's single. There's married. There's blondes. There's brunettes. There's shiny scalps. All kinds of things. People from the north, people from the south with that accent or this accent. And the world picks and chooses among all of these things that actually work together to make everyone a unique person. But they choose to divide those unique persons up based into categories. And when we play along with that game, giving preferential treatment to him because of how he looks or preferential treatment to her because of how much money she makes, James says we're making distinctions among ourselves with evil motives. In reality, the world is made up of two types of people, friends of God and enemies of God, believers in Christ and unbelievers. Children of our Father in heaven and orphan souls. And one of the burdens is that we would choose some people over others because of how the world distinguishes them rather than the fact that they need Christ. Maybe this person would be strategic to have in the church because of who they are and how the world sees them. Or maybe we want them in the church because they need Jesus. In the church, Christ is all and in all. When we show partiality, we're making distinctions among ourselves as his people. Distinctions among a group of people who get this are already distinct from the world. Instead of viewing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and recipients of grace, we start discriminating on the basis of what used to separate us prior to knowing Jesus. And that's foolish. And so we need to ask ourselves, when you look at another person in this church, If you were to look around this room, is your first thought, Christ is all and in all. When I see her and him, when I think about that brother or I pray for that sister, I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness for how God has united us into one family where where we can live together despite our differences. And Jesus reigns supreme over all of us. I know that they're different and I know that they have their quirks, but they're gods and that's what matters most to me. Is that how you view the people in this church? Christ is all. Or do you view another person in discrimination? Breaking each other up into categories that don't define us by Christ's standards, but divide us by the world's standards. Friends, we should be more united by what defines us in Christ than what divides us in the world. We found a solution to all the world's division. Every child who eats lunch alone at school is welcome to the table of Christ in him. Any outcast of society can make themselves at home in God's family. The socially awkward can be socially accepted. The uneducated are welcome and are considered most useful people in the body of Christ. The rich and the powerful and the famous are humbled by the cross to become like the rest of us. Being partial and making distinctions among God's people that no longer define us is a wicked thing to do. We should love and appreciate our different cultures and our heritages. 
That's what makes the church so beautiful, that these different groups come together. They really are different, but now they're united under Christ, and Christ reigns as supreme. And so that's what James is teaching us. Don't be partial. Don't have an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't give special attention to some and make distinctions among yourselves on the basis of how the world likes to divide people. It should be different here. So that's what partiality is. But why is it bad? Why is it a contradiction to have faith in Jesus and also have an attitude of personal favoritism? And so I just want to point out the first and foundational answer that James gives to that question of why it's bad, why you shouldn't do this, why he commands us not to in verse one. When we have distinctions among ourselves, here's the answer. We dishonor those whom God has chosen. When we make distinctions among ourselves, we dishonor those whom God has chosen. Look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Verses five and six describe the wickedness of favoritism in the church. God has chosen this person And poured out his grace on them, just like he has you, and you dishonor them. God has called this man or woman out from the domain of darkness and into the marvelous light. And we, mere sinners, would have nothing to do with them. Surely you can't hold on to the preciousness of the gospel for you with dishonor in your heart for others whom God has also saved. Now, of course, James carries forth his example of mistreating the poor in the church. And this must have been a serious problem among these churches. You can just imagine, can't you, the rich man coming in and getting special treatment. The hospitality and the greeting team would be quick to jump in and to help him and to shake his hand, make sure he finds his coffee, whatever that they need to do. This person needs to be taken care of. But when the poor person walks by, they get ignored And friends, being among God's people is the most atrocious place to be ignored and to be dishonored. Because it's a group of people who've felt the love and hospitality of a holy God towards sinners. And when it comes to the poor in particular, James makes this fantastic statement about them in verse 5. Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. That's such a profound argument. God, in general, has chosen to lavish his grace and mercy upon the poor. And this doesn't mean that no rich people get into heaven or that all poor people do. But it does show a particular pattern that these Christians should have known. This would have been obvious to them. These believers had been dispersed. Throughout the region, most likely because of persecution that happened to them in Jerusalem. And so they've lost their homes and they've lost their possessions from the world's standards. They're mostly poor people. And in these early churches, if you were to look around and you were to look at the people who were in there, you would say, these are mostly poorer folks. And so you'd say, wow, when I look at this church, I I can see that God is choosing the poor to be rich in faith. He's giving them the right to become heirs of the kingdom. There's a special love and a special care for these people. It's not that the poor are better. It's that the poor aren't left out in God's plan. 
And when the world would leave the poor out and throw them aside, God has chosen them to be rich in faith. Some would kick them out on the street and God would bring them into his family. Paul taught this very thing to the Corinthians. He thought about their church body and here's what he had to say in 1 Corinthians chapter one. He's looking at this church. He writes to them. He says, for consider your own calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he's chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So when the Corinthians looked at themselves in the mirror, they were a bunch of normal people. A lot of people would have considered them poor. Perhaps they were just the runts of society. They weren't super wise or mighty or noble. But Paul looks at them and says, consider your calling. God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. The despised God has chosen. He chose the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. You see, friends, in many ways, the poor and the weak and the vulnerable and the unimpressive are considered to be the despised people of the world. They're the things that are not. But when churches look around at themselves, they can say, God took a bunch of nobodies and made us somebodies. He's given us the right to be heirs of the kingdom. Not because we're good and strong. Not because we lured God in with our impressive talents and our piles of cash. But because God has chosen us to be a picture to the world. That you must become poor. You must become nothing at the foot of the cross. Totally dependent on Jesus for salvation in order to be saved. God's economy works much differently than the world's economy works. And he saved poor people of the world to show us what it looks like to be poor in spirit so we might be saved. But just imagine all these despised people, the ones that everybody looks at and says, oh, they're nothing, who have been made heirs of the kingdom. They've been made recipients of grace. And imagine those people looking at other brothers and sisters or looking at the uneducated or looking at the weak and the vulnerable Christian and dishonoring them, treating them like they're still nothing, despising them the way that the world does, giving preferential treatment to the impressive and ignoring the weak. There's a tremendous evil in looking at average, unimpressive, weak, vulnerable, poor saints, And dishonoring them. This is why partiality is so wicked. This is why we can't hold our faith in Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. Because if we're truly in Christ, we know that we have had nothing to offer on our own. And so no one is too poor. No one is too broken. No one is too weak. No one is too vulnerable to be in God's family. In fact, it's the prerequisite. No one can come to the cross unless they know these realities are true, at least about their souls. Jesus did say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so often God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith, to teach all of us how to be poor in spirit. 
Consider our calling. If you were to look around this room, you tell me how many of us are mighty and noble. Who in here is considered to be some of the most impressive people in the eyes of the world? And after you've just pondered that, I just want you to consider this reality that God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. In other words, if you don't feel noble, if you don't feel mighty, if you're just run of the mill, if we're just average, ordinary, unimpressive folks, there is no need for us to get discouraged. When I see a weak saint, I'm sure of it that Christ's power is made perfect in his weakness. If there's a poor believer, I'm amazed at the richness of her faith in Christ. If you were to point us to an unimpressive church or an unimpressive Christian, I can show you a perfect canvas for God to paint his glory. May that be the way that we love and treat one another in the church, not in a way that dishonors each other, but in a way that makes much of God's grace in our lives. So long as we are his body united together in Christ, we are all heirs of the kingdom. And so let's do what James tells us in verse one. Do not hold our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism.